You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Time that we introduce a, a new book, there's always kind of some background that we have to work through before we start in the actual text. And so um, just know that we are going to be in Galatians for the next 11 or 12 weeks. Um, and so it should be a fun journey through um, six chapters. We'll be able to take a, a closer dive maybe than we have into some of our other books in the past. And so um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, we may be asking ourselves, just like any time uh, that we come on a Sunday morning, what is it that's driving our thinking and going to a certain book at a certain time? Why would we go to the book of Galatians? Um, and, and Galatians in particular is an interesting book, but Uh, Time after time, regardless of which letter it is that Paul writes, he is always writing letters in order to defend and to clarify uh, the gospel of Jesus, the Christian gospel, to defend and to clarify the good news that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. And in this letter to the Galatians, Paul's going to address all sorts of issues, but it's always for the purpose of defending and clarifying this gospel message. And what we see in this, this, these first 10 verses already is that um, Paul contends that the Galatians have at some point and in some way abandoned the gospel for something else entirely, something that is entirely different from it. Now, what makes Galatians different, I think, from a lot of Paul's other writings is that rather than starting off with uh, a warm greeting and maybe a, a thanksgiving or a prayer on behalf of that church. In Galatians, he immediately rebukes them. There's no, I'm thankful for you, I'm praying for you, I love you, I'm encouraged by this in you, I'm encouraged to see these things happening because of you, right? None of that. Straight into a rebuke. Why is that? It's because there's heresy that is spreading in the church at Galatia. And this heresy, this this false teaching, was threatening the gospel and the integrity of that church because of it. And so what we're going to get, I think, over the next several weeks as we work through the book of Galatians is a sense of Paul's urgency, right? A sense of Paul's care that's expressing itself in some language that's pretty harsh and pretty unforgiving, pretty blunt. What makes Galatians unique, though, is that as far as what the specific heresy is, we don't really know, right? When we read other letters of Paul, like 1 Corinthians, we know that, like, okay, um, uh, sons are sleeping with their mothers-in-law. Like, that's not a good thing, right? And so he just comes out and he addresses it. He says, this is what's going on. This is why it's wrong. Here's the gospel. Live this way. Where in Galatians, what what he's kind of being murky about the details He's giving us the opportunity to apply this, I think, more broadly to any heresy that we come across. And so what's important, what's most important this morning in particular, is that we identify as a matter of urgency what the gospel is so that we can readily see the way that people, and I say people meaning also ourselves, try to distort it 
And then I also think that in these 10 verses, Paul shows us what the root of all heresy is. So even though we don't know specifically the heresy that Paul is addressing in the church at Galatia, the false teaching that is present in the church that's discrediting the gospel, discrediting God's people, I think Paul shows us what the root of all heresy is. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. Let's pray and then we'll jump into Galatians 1. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, that we are gathered together with your people. And I thank you, Lord, that um, your people come together only for one reason. Lord, there is one thing that links us all together. We may share some affinities here and there. We may share uh, a tax bracket for a season. We may share different different small aspects of life, God, but the only thing that could connect us in the way that this church is connected, the only way that could connect us in the way that the church in the world is connected is the work of your son, Jesus, who by grace has called us into your presence, not only named us as his brothers, but Lord has also made us co-heirs with him in your kingdom. And so, Lord, there is no difference between us in this room that is stronger than that reality, that is bigger than that reality. You have made us one people for your glory, for our joy, so that your gospel might be a worldwide, international, and diverse peoples. And so thank you that that is the room that we find ourselves in this morning, and thank you, Lord, that it is your word that continues to drive us toward the very focal point, the center of that truth, which is your son, Jesus. And so would you, by your spirit, speak to us this morning, be with us and instruct us, exhort us, Father, where we need it, encourage us where we need it. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so jumping in to Galatians, um, we'll start in verse three. This is what it says, to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, like I said, there's essentially three things we're, we're going to end up seeing this morning, right? Number one, Paul, from the outset, in a couple of quick verses gives us a full-throated gospel call, a full-throated explanation of the gospel so that he can rebuke the Galatians from it, right? So there's one gospel. It is that there is grace and peace that has been given to us from the Father and from Jesus the Son. And what is that gospel? Because it's the gospel as a matter of urgency that we need to know so that we can readily identify the way that people try to distort it and so we can avoid the root of all human heresy. Those are the three things we're looking at today. So let's talk a little bit more about this gospel. What is it? Now, some of us may think, Marshall, that's an elementary question. I've been going to church for a long time. I can read the verse. Let's get to the quote-unquote meat. And yet the contention that Paul would make, I believe, in even writing this and even starting his letter with these couple of sentences is that we don't know it well enough. 
is that maybe many of us, like the Galatians, find ourselves in a place where if we were to truly investigate not only what we say the gospel is, but what we believe it to be in the way that we live, might be astonished that we've so quickly turned. And so what is that gospel? That gospel is from the Father, from Jesus, Jesus who gave himself for us, right? So Jesus willingly and unforced coming to dwell among us so that he might give himself not only to us as a means by which we could know God, but also for us so that we might have fellowship with God through a righteousness that we couldn't acquire. Which is why he gave himself, right? For our sins. So Jesus, living a perfect and sinless life, did what we couldn't do, earns the favor of God by his righteousness. And yet what's so stunning about that is that instead of lording his accomplishments over us, he gives that up as well. In that on the cross, giving himself for our sins meant that in that moment the greatest exchange in the history of the universe took place because in that moment the full and the just wrath of God towards sin was borne out upon Jesus the son in spite of the fact that he had lived more than good enough to earn God's favor why is that because in that moment the righteousness of Jesus was exchanged for the unrighteousness of sinners and God punished him according to those So that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus would be given his perfect record instead of their imperfect one. Now why does he do this? It goes on to say, as we continue in the sentence, he did this to deliver us. Meaning that Christians have been set free from striving after their own righteousness. And we both get to rest and we get to rejoice in the righteousness that we've been given by grace. And now hold on to by faith. Both of which are a gift, Ephesians says. And what have we been delivered from? He tells us that we've been delivered from the present evil age. That in doing all of this, Jesus brings us out of the present evil age and into a new world. A new reality. And so gospel Christianity is not just an ideology. It's not a brand new system of thought with ideals that lead individuals to greater spiritual enlightenment. Gospel Christianity is the gift of a new life in a new world. Jesus' life in Jesus' world. Jesus' inheritance in Jesus' kingdom. And so it has profound implications on life today. That's why he says to deliver us from the present evil age. So what we say or what we can know about the gospel is not only that there's some future reality of it that one day we're going to be liberated from this place and it's all going to be good and right in that place, but that there are real implications in the present for Christians. So the gospel of Jesus is not something that we accept and then let rest while we wait in heaven's waiting room, but rather that there's a present, real, right now deliverance from evil, that God is working in us by grace 
through the work of Jesus who gave himself for our sins. And so it's not just about life after death. And Paul goes on to tell us that all of these things happened according to the will of our God and Father. And so according to Paul, God has finally, in Jesus, unveiled his long-awaited plan for the world. And so we have to look at Galatians in light of the gospel of God's global, all-encompassing kingdom. Galatians and the gospel Both of them, their scope is so much more broad than simply telling us about how individuals get saved. Which I think is often the way we read Galatians. And Paul goes on to say that because of all of these things, because of this great gospel, because of this reality that God has worked through Jesus for grace and for our peace, to to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The glory. I love that idea. That there is glory, that it is singular, that it is comprehensive, and that it is due to him because of this glorious gospel that he has worked in the world. And so we're off to a good start in the book of Galatians, right? The letter to to the church at Galatia. And yet it takes a bit of a turn in verse 6. And so if that is the gospel, Paul is going to contend that the problem in the church at Galatia, and if we're not careful, the problem for us is this. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Again, I don't, I don't know about you, but I've, <laughs> there have been a couple of times I've woken up sort of from the stupor of, of sin and asked myself this, or said to myself these words, man, I, how did I get here? I'm astonished at how quickly and how regularly I find myself deserting him who called me and turn so regularly to these different gospels, to these different versions of good news that Paul Paul is saying the world will attempt to give us, right? That's what he's saying. He's telling us that the world has lots of gospels and that all of them are warring for our affections and that if we're not careful will be astonished by how quickly we desert this gospel. And yet here's the truth about these gospels that the world presents us, these these versions of good news. Verse 7 says this, Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So what does he say? I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so Paul says, look, there might be a lot of things that are put before you as good news. And the reality is that 
if they are not the gospel of Christ exclusively and without stain, then they aren't good news. They're distortions. There's only one true good news, and it is this news that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father, and so we have grace and we have peace. And Paul says, there will be many who will try to distort that for us. To make it mean something different. To make it serve another purpose. But those cannot and will not ever be truly good news. So how can we ensure that the gospel that we believe is actually the true gospel? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. Paul's given us, you know, a couple of short sentences which are helpful, but, but arguably there's a lot to, to jump off into from there, right? And he's also telling us that we need to be really careful because there are these distortions and they will be compelling. They will be presented to us as good news, but they're not good news. So how can we ensure that the gospel we believe is actually the true gospel? Well, the standard that Paul gives us is this. He says the one true gospel is the gospel that he and the other apostles receive directly from Jesus and teach to us throughout the Bible. That's why he starts in verse 1 saying that he's an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's ceding all of his authority. Paul's ceding the source of his message, not in some some philosophical conjuring that he's managed to unlock by his own ability to rationalize, but rather that the message of the gospel was imparted to him not by men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and from God the Father. That when he was riding on his horse to Damascus to, to persecute the church, God knocked him off his horse and said, this is the gospel, go preach this and stop killing my people. He'll go on to defend that in the, in the few verses that we'll talk about next week. And we'll talk about why that's important next week. But the one true gospel is the gospel that both Paul and the other apostles receive directly from Jesus and teach through the Bible. Now, some of us might say, okay, that's really convenient, right? It's really convenient that Paul would claim that the one true gospel is the gospel that he's preaching, right? And not what whoever else is preaching to the church at Galatia at the time. But look at what he says in verse 8. He says in verse 8, But even if we, we including Paul, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. And so Paul includes himself. He says, even if we... You see, again, Paul is reaffirming this idea that the gospel did not come to him through his human reasoning, through his ability to reflect 
The gospel was given to him by Jesus, and so it's not his to change, which is why he says, so even if I ever tell you anything to the contrary, then let me be accursed. It's like, look, there may come a day where I fall for one of these distortions, and if I do, you need to throw me out. I feel like a lot of the the angst that we will feel in, in Paul's writing as we work through the book of Galatians, a lot of the, the, the kind of almost anger that we'll read is in some ways tempered by Paul's posture here. In that it's a pretty humble posture for a guy who's claiming that his message is the message that judges all other messages. That every other message gets compared to the message that Paul is preaching and that if it doesn't measure up, then it's not the message. Then it's not the good news. And so this is why, brothers and sisters, every single week we get together and what do we say? We're going to go to the scriptures this morning because we believe that it's there that the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed to us. Because again, I could come up with all kinds of probably pithy sayings. We could make this a comedy hour. We could talk about 10 best tips for whatever. But the reality is that more than good advice this morning, what we need is good news. And there's only one source of it. And it's this teaching. It's the teaching of the apostles throughout God's word. This consistent and cohesive gospel message that they've given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. And so the New Testament writings of the apostles provide the standard according to which you should judge every word that I say and every sermon that you hear for the rest of your life, whether it's here or somewhere else. This is the standard according to which you should judge your books and your podcasts and your Bible studies and parish gathering discussions, which is a huge reason why we need to know the Bible and believe it, even when it says you're wrong. And so Paul makes clear to us what this good news is, this good news about Jesus and what he's done on our behalf and what he's doing in the world and that that's to the glory of God the Father. And Paul warns us that that can and will be distorted if we're not careful. And then I think, I really, I really think, I really believe that Paul now gives us the root of all human heresy. And this, so this is what he says in verse 9. He says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So if he wasn't clear, the sentence before, the very next sentence, he says literally the exact same thing. And then in verse 10, he says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And again, I think Paul is getting to something here. The root of heresy, the root of false teaching, the root of distortions to the gospel is 
always an attempt to please man. Pure and simple. Anytime that we're tempted to compromise the gospel, it's because we're trying to please ourselves. It's because we're trying to please man. It's either an attempt to please ourselves by allowing ourselves more freedom than God's word warrants, or it's an attempt to soften the word of God so as not to offend others, right, in order to please other people. I think we see this all throughout the Bible, but let's just go back to the first heresy, the first false teaching, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's the pivotal moment in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So what happens? What happens in this moment? The serpent preaches a false gospel, a distorted good news to Eve that when she eats of the fruit, she will be like God, able to discern good and evil. She hears it, she looks at the fruit, and it is delightful to her eyes and desirable for wisdom. And so she decides to indulge herself. She decides to please herself. She's more concerned with her pleasure than with God's displeasure in that moment. But here's what's amazing is in this moment, we not only see that, right? We not only see her actively pursuing this false teaching, we also see Adam standing by watching it all happen. He's right there with her, right? That's what it says. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. He was right there with her the whole time and rather than speaking up to say, remember what God said? He keeps his mouth shut and actually then he just opens it again to eat. He's more concerned with pleasing Eve in that moment than with pleasing God. He doesn't want to get between Eve and what she wants. And so he allows her to eat, and then he eats it himself. And guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. Because Satan, because he preaches a false gospel, is accursed. Go to verse 14. It says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so Paul really isn't telling us much of anything new. Other than that we have 
a clear knowledge of where relationship with God is now made possible through Jesus and through Jesus alone, through his giving of himself on our behalf for our sins, so that we might be delivered from this present evil age according to the will of the Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, if I preach to you anything contrary to this, or if anybody else preaches to you anything contrary to this, let them be accursed. He says, if I turn into the serpent, curse me like the serpent. And so here's my question this morning, and this is really where I, where I would like for us to land, both for, both for Christians and, and non-Christians. First, um, for Christians in the room this morning, brothers and sisters, could it be, could it be that our Christian lives and message aren't compelling, not because the gospel isn't compelling, but because we're preaching a different gospel? Because here's the reality, what Paul is telling us this morning is that a half gospel is a non-gospel. That even a distorted gospel, even if we get parts of it right, if it's not all right, then it's not the good news. Could it be, brothers and sisters, that we are accursed? Could it be that we have poisoned our own well by filling it with garbage? Could it be that there's living water there, but that we've dumped enough trash on top of it so that it can't be found? Could it be that we've tried to attach things to this gospel that never belonged with it in the first place? Could it be that we've tried to attach American nationalism? Could it be that we've tried to attach legalism? Could it be that we've tried to attach cheap grace? Could it be that we've tried to attach prosperity to God's gospel? Could it be that we've tried to attach a, a, a racial supremacy to it? Could it be that throughout American history, which we just happen to find ourselves in, the gospel has consistently been picked at and added to causes that it had nothing to do with or should have had nothing to do with? And so our witness isn't compromised because of the gospel, but because we have distorted it. Could it be that even though we tell people that grace of, the grace of God is free and that there is level ground before the cross, that all of us are sinners, could it be that the reason the gospel isn't compelling is that we say that and then we look down on people for the way that they live, even though they're not Christians? Could it be that we say that Christianity is not primarily about moralism, but we expect everybody to live according to our morality structure? Or could it be that we say that the gospel leads us to freedom, but then we are too scared to also tell people that freedom means ripping some of the sin out of our lives that's going to be really uncomfortable. And so they come to Jesus and they realize that they're not really any more free than they were before. And so it's just like any other system of thinking. It's just like any other philosophy. It's just like any other attempt to better oneself rather than a wholesale change by the Holy Spirit according to the work of Jesus and the grace of God. Could we be preaching the false gospel that following Jesus is chiefly about earning moral completion badges like a good boy or a Girl Scout? 
Could we be preaching the false gospel that Jesus loves us no matter what so we can do whatever we want whenever we want with no impunity? That his word doesn't matter or isn't relevant to today's cultural issues. And here's what I would say to us if we're not Christians in the room this morning. There's some real ways, more likely than not, that the church has failed you in these areas. But here's what I would encourage you to do. If you're going to reject Jesus, then I would encourage you to reject him and not a distorted version of him. And so, brothers and sisters, if... (laughs) If we want our non-Christians to reject Jesus for the right reasons, then we must. We must preach this kind of comprehensive gospel, this kind of uncompromised gospel, this kind of gospel that really is the only kind of gospel, the good news of a Savior, the good news of Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we can't be so rigidly attached to our own ability to be moral that we, comp- that we compromise this message that says our morality is, isn't what did anything. But we also can't be so afraid to be rejected that we don't keep to and hold to and refuse to compromise on the teaching of God through His Word. Because we can distort the gospel both ways. And both of those ways are harmful. And both of those lead us to a place. Where we won't be blessed in the presence of God. But we'll be accursed and apart from God. This is what's at stake in the book of Galatians. And I believe that this is what is at stake in our culture today, that if we truly want to see revival, revival will not come if we have attached our gospel to anything else. Revival will not come if we're preaching a distorted gospel because distorted gospels are not gospels. And so the time is now for us to go to this well that is filled with living water and dig out the garbage that we put there so that we can taste and drink from that which is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And we're grateful to be in your presence, God. And we pray, Lord, that we would continually and humbly seek to align ourselves with your word. God, again, not not so that we can earn achievement badges, but so that, God, we are rigid where we need to be rigid, 
so that we're rigidly attached to this gospel of justifying grace, that, that Jesus accomplished what we couldn't accomplish, that he did it for us to rescue us, to deliver us from this present evil age according to your will, God. Pray, Lord, that this would be the message that is preached not only from this stage on Sunday mornings, not only sung through these microphones in these songs, not only read on Sunday mornings, God, but that is lived out both in word and in deed in our lives, Father. And if it is not, Lord, may we be accursed. Lord, would you do what you must do so that this gospel, this pure and unadulterated gospel, this wondrous good news that fights our legalism and also fights cheap grace, Lord, that it would challenge all of us this morning and it would call us to greater faithfulness to you. Thank you, Lord, that as we come to the table this morning, we're going to taste and to see that you're good. We're going to the table to be reminded that we have grace and peace from you through Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of you, Father. And may we come to the table and walk away from the table, Lord, giving you the glory that you are due forever and ever. Amen, God. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. You are gracious and good. Amen.